Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the roof. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub of face, cherub of face, little boy who would do, who would do, who's, who's, who's life would be. I'd harm someone if I kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What tales will you be regaling us with this week, my friend? Well, Tara, I'm going to tell the story of Patrick Crowe, a knockabout lad who decided to get on the piss with two of his mates. His good night turned bad when he ran into three rowdy teenage girls who called in reinforcements for a spot of biffo. Ah, bit of an all-in brawl. All in, all out. What have you got for us, Tara? South African woman Marriott Bosch was a manipulative and not very clever murderess who planned the death of her best friend so that she could go on to marry the woman's husband. Oh, that's low. Yeah, no friendship pins for you, Marriott. No, not cool, Marriott. Mm-mm. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. I do. I think it's time for us to get murdery. I believe you're correct, sir. All right, Tara. Mariette Bosch was a tall, blonde mother of three who had come to Botswana from Petersburg in South Africa with her first husband, Justin, in 1992. They were attracted to the country because of its flourishing diamond-driven economy and low crime rate. Were they blood diamonds? Oh, it has a, a flourishing blood diamond-driven economy. Oh, nice. And low, cli- low crime rate somehow. Right, low, cri- low crime rate? Low, say, cli- say, can you low say crime that? rate. Low crime rate. They bought a house in Fakalane, a fancy area which was popular with well-to-do white South Africans. Here they could afford to have maids and garden boys. You'd make a pretty good garden boy, Barney. Well, I am muscular enough, and I do look pretty good in a pair of jorts. Yeah, well, that's actually the job description, so you've got it. I'm here to clean your pool. <laughs> yeah, hired. 
Marriott's days were filled with shopping sprees, visits to beauty salons, playing bridge and gambling at casinos. Weekends were spent with her husband at golf courses and hunting at game lodges. Hunting at game lodges? Oh, yes. They're beasts. You know they actually respect you for shooting them. Well, they love being hunted, don't they? Oh, they enjoy it. It gives them something to do. Well, the growly ones, oh, they're a bit hard to shoot, but uh, we drug them, of course. Well, I mean, sometimes one has to. Just ask her and Hemingway. I once shot a squirrel with a blunderbuss. There was just a splat of red blood on the wall. It was as though it never existed in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They enjoy it. It's not like they read. Mariette fitted into this community well, as she'd always lived a life of leisure as the daughter of a stinking rich liquor store owner. She quickly became part of Botswana's high society and a regular attendant at the Dutch Reformed Church in Gaborone. Sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. The reform. I come for the reform, but I stay for the Dutch church. Yeah, that, that modern Dutch church, rubbish. Mm. I like the reform one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> a former resident of the area has said of the expatriate community, it's a small closed community where everybody knows everyone else. They go to the same clubs, socialise among themselves and often sleep with each other. It's a privileged existence, but can become very incestuous and fraught. Sounds like crime con. Yeah, <laughs> from the rumours I heard. Yeah. <laughs> Marriott and Justin became friends with another wealthy white couple, Ria and Tenny Walmerans, who lived nearby. The Walmerans' marriage was rather strained. Um, they'd actually separated in 1993 and got back together the following year after Tenny had helped Ria get a job as financial director of a concrete company through his connections with its managing director, Henny Coetzee. Henny Coetzee? Henny Coetzee. Runs a concrete factory. He does. <laughs> I will have a Henny Coetzee, please. Right. Henny, could I you give me some concrete, please? Oh, yes. Solid operation. Mm. Um, so although Rhea wasn't a, a leading a wife of leisure, um, she worked. She and Mariette still got along very well. You said wife of leisure. I know. I meant to say wife of leisure. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know what? It never works. I've said it so many times in my life and everyone looks at me like, speech just... impediment much, bitch. Mariette and Rhea took classes together in decorating porcelain dolls and they were said to have made the most decadent cakes. Wow. You know, stuff all women do when they hang out. Really? Yeah. The do you couples, do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm a broad, remember? Uh, do broads do that? Broads don't do any of that. No, they don't. No, they do don't decorate porcelain dolls unless they're painting horns on them. Um, they don't usually make decadent cakes, but I, I suppose they could. So decadent cakes, creepy dolls and shooting defenseless animals. Not a thing that a broad would do, no. Cool. Yeah, there you go. This whole episode is just going to be about what it is to be abroad now, isn't it? Uh, I think most of our listeners, well, a lot of them probably broads. Anyway, the couples even used to holiday together, so that's how close they were. Just back on this broad thing, what's mm. the male equivalent of that? I don't know, because men are allowed to um, to drink and swear and say what they what they think. It's just normal, just a normal man. Yeah, just a guy, I guess. Yeah. Just a normal dude. But no, when right. when, it, when it's a woman, you, you're a you're a broad. It's a really like sort of old schooly like 1950s. I don't oh. know about her. She's a bit of a cluey broad. Oh, that broad, I wouldn't trust her for, with anything. 
Nah. Well, people do say those things about you, so yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. I say those things about you. Well, you say those things to me. I do, I do. In 1995, Justin was killed in a horrific car accident. Oh. Mariette was distraught, but her good friend Rhea comforted her and supported her and her children throughout this awful tragedy. Oh, what a good friend. Yeah, it's good oh. to have a close friend like that. You really appreciate mm. them, I find. Mm. To thank Rhea for her kindness, Mariette began an affair with her husband, Tenny, just five months after Justin's death. The two consummated their selfish sexual tension by driving to a Johannesburg motel and having what was described in court as good sexual intercourse. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't great. It was good. It was adequate sex. Yeah, like it, it wasn't the worst sex I've ever had and it certainly wasn't the best, but um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. And how long did it go for? Well, it went for the right amount of time. <laughs> yes. Not too long. Not too short. Not too short. It was, it was, it was yes, good. It was yeah, adequate. It was good. Mm. Mm. Tenny promised Mariette that he would leave Rhea for her, but when he still hadn't done so by June 1996, she decided to take matters into her own hands. Ooh. In early June, Mariette had gone to Petersburg in South Africa and borrowed a 9mm Browning pistol from a friend who had been looking after her late husband's gun collection. She said that she needed it as she wanted to do some target shooting. Bringing a firearm into Botswana is actually a criminal offence in itself. Okay. Yeah, they don't like it. They're like, mm-mm, nah. Hmm. Can't use it, don't want it, don't need it, nah. Rhea Wolmerans was home alone on the night of June 26th as Tenny was working away at the time. Mariette is said to have driven the two blocks to the Wolmerans' house, scaled a six-foot wall and entered their home. She found Rhea making a cup of tea and fired at her twice, hitting her in the stomach and ribs. There were no witnesses. Uh. Rhea's body was found by her daughter later that evening. I mean, that's going to be the worst thing. Yeah, she didn't even get to finish a cup of tea. She did not. Um, apparently it looked like a burglary that had gone tragically wrong, but nothing had been stolen, so I don't think it really did. So she climbed over this wall. Ah, right? she scampered over it. Scampered over well, this wall. Well, apparently she either scampered over it, but there is talk that maybe like um, Rhea just let her in. She could have knocked. Well, they knew could each other. Could have rang the doorbell. That's yeah. right. So she could have bought a ladder too and had it in the back of her car. She could have. took it with her. Hey, um, so she scaled this back wall. The back door was open, was it? Well, yeah, I don't think they were locking their doors. This is just really not... Why, don't, yeah, right. why are you doing this? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just asking. I want to get to the bottom of it. You mean... Shut, shut up, Barney. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's shut up. up. The man one should shut up and let the girl one talk. Uh, that's just broad speak, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Police initially had no clues to the killing and made no arrest for three months, leading Mariette to smugly believe that she'd committed the perfect murder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did she? No. Quite happy to tango on the grave of their wife and friend, Tenny and Mariette rented a house together one month after Rhea's murder. Oh, the nerve. In September... Three months after the murder, they got engaged and told their families that they were going to South Africa to shop for wedding outfits. Can you think of anything more romantic? I cannot. How about a colonoscopy? No, that's not romantic. No, neither is this. Mariette ended up ordering a floofy frou-frou wedding dress from a designer in Pretoria. Do you know anything about this dress? Well, did it have fluffy shoulders? Oh, did it fluffy ever? Shoulder? Did it have a bow on the back? Just one? <laughs> Hell no, several. Oh, wow. 
It was beautiful. But Mariette had made some mistakes that were to provide crucial evidence against her. Although she didn't get along with her sister-in-law, Judith Bosch, in fact, Judith pretty much fucking hated her and wasn't subtle about it. But anyway, Mariette had told her before the murder that she was in love with Tenny and they wanted to get married. Oh, you know, the sex is not, it's not bad. I mean, it's not great. It's good. It's adequate. Uh, it's good. You know, yeah, it's, we, it should, we should get married. A good length of time. Yeah, it's, passes. That's it's, good. She also gave the gun she used for the murder to Judith's husband to look after. The stupidity is strong in this one. Yeah, apparently so. Judith Bosch remembered a phone call she received from a friend on the morning of the murder telling her about Rhea's death. She asked the friend about the murder weapon and was told that it was a 9mm automatic pistol. The friend who was looking after the family's firearm collection had earlier told Judith that Mariette had borrowed one of the guns. When Judith found out about the murder, the weapon used and the wedding dress Mariette had bought, she did the math and came to the conclusion that Mariette had murdered Rhea and she took the gun to the police. How did she do that math? Did she add that up in her head or do you use a calculator? Well, she's a woman, so she probably must have got a man to do it for her, right? Well, yeah, she's no broad. <laughs> no. Um, look, I think she used an abacus. Also, by the way, I actually think she might be a broad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pulled in for questioning, Tenny Walmeron said to detectives, I pray the gun and cartridges don't match. Oh, but they did, Tenny. They did. Forensics tests showed that the gun they recovered was the murder weapon and they arrested Mariette and Tenny on October the 7th, 1996. Now, Tenny had a solid alibi for the night of the murder as he could prove that he'd been away working. Whereas Mariette was like, working? What even is that? Working out. She probably thought oh, it was some kind of exercise right. thing. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She Living Newton John, maybe. Oh, no, it's when you stand there and you have that band thing around you and it just jiggles you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got to get me one of those. You've got to put on a leotard and, and just, then just get it get it to jiggle your fat. Does that make your fat, your fat ass gut go away if it jiggles enough? Yeah, you just jiggle it off, I guess. I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> oh, there's lots of ways you can do it now, Tara. There's magnets. <laughs> um, you can do it with little electrical impulses. Oh, personally, you know? I just like little to swallow shops. tapeworms, really big ones. Really? They take care of it for me. Yeah, they're snakes. Yeah, have you been wondering why I look so slim? Because you eat snakes, <laughs> live snakes. Yeah. I mean, does this actually in nice. any way conflict with people's opinions of me? <laughs> well, it's just all broad speak to me. <laughs> I mean, it's not great. But it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's not the worst. <laughs> it's not the worst. It's good. It's good. It's adequate. It's good. Mm, good enough. Mariette initially refused to talk to the police about the gun. Eventually, she made a statement saying that she'd borrowed the gun from Rhea's boss, Henny Coetzee. Mariette was granted bail after 10 months in custody. Undeterred by the fact that she was charged with the murder of his wife, Tenny married Mariette in 1998. Oh, they got to have that um, beautiful uh, wedding fru -fru dress. Frou-frou wedding. Fru -fru Do you want to know wedding. how the wedding was? Yeah. Oh, it was good. It was good enough, wasn't it? It wasn't great. I mean, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't great. It, it, was, was, it was an adequate night. I'm, I'm, yeah, I did not enjoy myself. Marriott's trial opened in December 1999 at Botswana's Labatst High Court before Justice Isaac Abogi. In many African nations, there's actually no jury and the judge has to find the verdict on their lonesome. I was obsessed with that Oscar Pistorius case, you know, the guy with no, no legs who shot his girlfriend through the door. Yeah. And yeah, that was, just a, that was just one judge. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no jury. 
Mm, I remember that. Yeah, it was it was good. Quite compelling that case. I followed that. Oh, definitely compelling. I mean, it wasn't great, but no, uh, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It, it actually, it really wasn't. But, um, anyway. The prosecution claimed it was Mariette who had climbed over the wall into the Walmerans' garden, entered the house and shot Rhea. More damning evidence against her came from her sister-in-law Judith regarding the gun and the affair. Mariette admitted borrowing the gun from a friend, but claimed she did so after being hypnotised by Henny Coetzee, Rhea's former boss. You want to know how he hypnotised her? Oh, with a swinging pocket watch? Magnets and tapeworms. No. <laughs> Did he digmatise her, maybe? No, magnets and tapeworms? <laughs> Look, if you can think of a better way of doing yeah. it, I'd like to hear about it, okay? She said Henny had put some sort of drug into wine that they were drinking and that he then told her to get the gun and bring it to him, but not to mention it to anyone. Shh. It's a hypnotizing secret. Oh, that's the drug that makes you kill your lover's wife. wife. Yeah, he yeah. used that one over the counter. Apparently, well, don't even need a prescription. No, no, you don't even have to show ID. You can just get it anywhere. Supermarkets, actually. Oh yeah. So she accused him of being the killer, which he denied. Henny's alleged motive was that Rhea had uncovered financial irregularities in his company, and that these would be revealed at a forthcoming audit. But these claims were proved to be absolute bullshit. Well, of course they are. Yeah. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Not good. Not good at all. The defence pointed out that there was no direct forensic evidence linking Mariette to the murder. Her fingerprints were not on the gun or in Rhea's home. It was also claimed by their expert witness, a psychiatrist called Dr Louise Olivier, who bore more than a passing resemblance to Barbara Cartland, that Mariette did not have a killer's profile and could not lie. Oh, I don't believe in the science in that. I don't think there is any science in that. This was dismissed by the judge as of no consequence to the defence. Oh, well, she's just incapable of lying. Bullshit. Bullshit. I'm pretty sure that's what he said. But here's the kicker, right? Mariette claimed that she could have not scaled the garden wall as she was too fat at the time of the murder. The old I'm too fat defence. Oh, it's quite common, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. There's actually um, an episode of some TV show called Too Fat to Kill. My beats are too fat. Yeah. Well, that's with a PH. No, no. She, was, she wasn't like, yeah, my beats are too fat to kill. She was like... Too obese, can't do it. And she wasn't. This slice of stupid straw clutching was rejected by the court as well. Straw clutching, hey? Mm-hmm. Mariette's alibi was that she'd been at home all evening, and this was verified by her daughters, but rebutted by her maid, who said that Mariette had gone out at about 8pm. She should have paid that maid a little bit more. Yes, she should have. Maybe been nicer to her. Uh, yeah, look, I don't have any like histories of abuse there. It's not like right. um, Harry Thor. No. She wasn't using her fancy whip on them or something. <laughs> fancy whip. <laughs> so there was a very strong circumstantial case against Mariette, with no dispute about the fact that she brought the murder weapon into the country, or that she and Tenny were having an affair before Rhea was killed. She had a disputed alibi for the night of the crime and a very clear motive. That's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. Yeah, it's isn't quite it? damning. No physical evidence, but that's pretty damning. Her defence was ridiculous at best. Not surprising, on February 21st, 2000, the judge found her guilty of murder and rejected any claim that she'd acted under the influence of another, which would have allowed him to pass the alternative sentence of life in prison. 
See, in Botswana, the death sentence is mandatory upon conviction for murder and its legal system does not recognise degrees of murder. So no first degree murder, second degree murder. No, no, murder. murder is murder. You get the hangman's noose. At sentencing, the judge said that he could find no extenuating circumstances. Actually, I think I'll get you to do this one, Barney, because, like, he's a dude judge. Sure. The crime was carefully planned with the motive of enabling you to take over the husband of the deceased. I have not been able to find one moral extenuating circumstance. You are not very young. You are not intoxicated and you are not provoked. I really enjoyed the shade where he was like, you are not very young. Mm, you are Drop the tea. Yeah, not too fat to climb. <laughs> you are not too old. You are not too fat. After his judgment, he asked Mariette if she had anything to say before she was sentenced. She replied, I'm not guilty. You're sentencing a woman for something she did not do. Mariette Bosch became the first white woman sentenced to hang in Botswana. Ooh, that's probably a pretty big deal then. Yes. Mm. She was taken back to the Gaborone Central Prison and placed in solitary confinement on death row to await her appeal. Their death row inmates don't work or do chores. Instead, they're left to occupy themselves throughout the day and night, which is not uncommon. Although Mariette had been given the death sentence, she was quite sure that a wealthy white woman like herself would not come face to face with the gallows, saying... I believe that God will deliver me from this nightmare. I have been framed. People have turned against me, but God will not. She, of course, appealed the decision. Well, she's white. She's rich. I'm blonde. She's she's blonde. She has influence. I'm tall. What more does the the court want? I have good sex. (laughs) Good sex. (laughs) Mariette, who had just turned 50, entered the packed courtroom at 9.30am on the morning of her appeal, which was January 18th, 2001. She blew a kiss towards Tenny Walmerans. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) And then she sat down to listen to the proceedings. The case against Mariette was presented by Botswana's Assistant Attorney General, who recapped the evidence presented at the initial trial. But she had a deuce up her sleeve. Ah. Ah. For her defence, Mariette had hired a flashy senior British QC named Desmond De Silva. He was known as the Scarlet Pimpernel after saving over 35 defendants from execution in foreign countries and had been flown in from his chambers in London as her last legal hope. But he didn't have much to work with. Ah, the fancy QC. Mm-hmm. Mm. The appeal was denied. Oh. Mariette was visibly shocked when the judges delivered their ruling. But I'm white. I'm rich. I'm blonde. I'm tall. No. I was framed. No. It's not good. No. After this... (laughs) After the appeal was dismissed, her lawyer, Edward Fasshole Luke II... That's not a name, is it? That's the fakest name I've ever heard. (laughs) Is that a real name? Yes. Say it again. After the appeal was dismissed, her lawyer, Edward Fasshole Luke II, which has to be the fakest sounding name Ah. I've ever heard, began preparing an appeal for clemency for Mariette. Where the death sentence is upheld on appeal, the case is considered by the Advisory Committee on the Prerogative of Mercy, which advises the President. So the President of Botswana, 
Festus Mogwe said while on a visit to London on March 29th that he would not consider granting Marriott clemency. Fuck no. Mm-mm. Her? No. No. You can blow me all the kisses in the world, but <laughs> Sloppy you're or still going to swing, Marriott. Um, but, like, Marriott and, and her husband and, and her family and everything still thought she might get off. Hmm. Marriott spent her days on death row wearing an unflattering brown prison dress in a single cell with just a mattress and a bucket. Eating standard prison food, which was mostly tripe and morogo, which is wild African spinach. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Mm, sounds delicious. No, it doesn't. Just shit in a bucket. Yeah, well, she did have to. On Friday, March 30th, Marriott's death warrant was read to her, and she was told that her execution would take place early the next morning. She wasn't allowed any visitors or to say goodbye to her family, nor was she given a special last meal. So just more spinach and tripe for you, Marriott. Yeah. A minister of the church, the prison doctor and prison officials witnessed the hanging, which took place at 6am the following morning. Executions in Botswana are carried out in complete secrecy. No details are released and no advance warning is given. After her death, her body was buried in the prison cemetery. They're like, you're never getting out. Wow. Tenny Walmerans had made an appointment three weeks earlier to visit Mariette on the Friday before her death. This appointment had been confirmed by the prison officials, but when he phoned them on the Friday morning, he was told by a senior official that they were busy with an inspection and that all visitors for the day had been postponed. Instead, he was told to come back on the following Monday. When he and Mariette's daughters did so, they were met by prison officials who told them that Mariette had been hanged on Saturday. Oh, yeah, we hanged her on Saturday. Yeah. Do you, 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 you want to see her room? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, so, obviously, he and her daughters were, were shocked and devastated by this news. Yeah, that's like, a bit of a bummer. Totally. The execution only two months after Marriott's appeal is a record for Botswana, where the time between sentence and execution is normally one to several years. Yeah, that seems very quick. So fast. Why so? Well, it's thought that they carried it out so quickly because of the growing international controversy over the case and increasing pressure from various human rights groups about the death penalty. Mm. And I guess they, they didn't want her to lose that appeal and, and have it be like, we only hang black people. Yeah. There was a lot of elements at play, but I mean, that is it's very fast. But I mean, it kind of has a happy ending because Tenny went on to marry the person who actually hanged Mariette. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, well, she, you killed, killed, she killed Rhea yeah. and then he married her and then someone killed her. So surely logic would have it that he married them. Well, normally with an execution, there'd be three people that would pull a lever and it's a random thing, so they don't know who did it. So, I don't know. Did he marry all three? Yeah. Or to, to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what do. I don't know. It's starting to make it up now. The uh, real story well, ended. This is just crap. It really is, isn't mm, it? Yeah. Maybe it's time for something else. What might it be time for? True Crime Nerd Time. Hooray. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? 
You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And I have a cracker here sent in by Stephen Bennett from Minnesota, and he writes about Into the Abyss, which is a documentary on Netflix. Werner Herzog's 2011 documentary Into the Abyss takes a long, hard look at the death penalty through the case of a triple homicide committed in Texas in 2000. Michael Perry and Jason Burkett, who were 18 at the time, killed three people over something as trivial as a car. Perry got the death penalty while Burkett, helped by an emotional plea from his father, only received a life sentence. Herzog is a brilliant interviewer, and the subjects in Into the Abyss speak emotionally, profoundly, even poetically about their circumstances and their views, shedding light on so many aspects of crime and punishment in the United States. It also covers the toll capital punishment takes on those people hired to carry it out. In such detail, you can't help but be moved by their stories. Herzog's intention isn't trying to hard sell an anti-death penalty agenda, but it's impossible to watch this documentary and not feel conflicted about it, or at least I couldn't anyway. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, Into the Abyss is brilliant. Mm. Um, All the interviews are chilling, but the ones with the people who do the executions are, I don't know, they're so poignant. It's just fascinating stuff. I think you might have seen this. Of course I've seen it. I've seen, like, everything. I was hoping True Crime Nerd Time would actually, you know, give me some stuff that I haven't heard of. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, occasionally that happens. But, yeah, when it's the documentaries, I'm all over that. This is awesome. You've got to check it out. Into the Abyss. And it's on Netflix at the moment, I hear. Yep. Cool. Well, that's what I've heard. Cool bananas. (laughs) Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com So Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murderery. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Barney, get murdery. 22-year-old Patrick Crowe was an apprentice chef who lived in Windsor on the northwestern outskirts of Sydney. At about 7.30pm on Saturday, July 7th, 2012, Patrick met with two friends, Joshua Thompson and Dean Roche, at the Church Street Mall in Parramatta. It had been a long week for Patrick, or Paddy to his friends, Getting up at Sparrow's Fart, he had been grilling focaccias and smashing avocado all week long, so he decided it was time for a few bevies. Well, I mean, rightly so. We're going to do this after recording, aren't we? I think we are. I think yeah. we should. I think we should. I, I think know. we have to. And in fact, like the longer it takes to record, the less we're not drinking and the more we want it, the more we want it. Well, I'm, I'm, it's quite a compelling argument. Maybe I should just <laughs> press on then. Okay, come on. <laughs> Rush through it so we can get to the drinking. <laughs> In the next few hours, I had many drinks and did a bit oh, of no, 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 Okay, oh. now we're over. Keep kicking okay. the pricks. Glug, 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 In the next few hours, they had many drinks and did a bit of a pub crawl through Parramatta. Three pubs, I uh, believe. Oh, well, you could crawl between three, I guess. At about 1am, where there were more than three sheets to the wind, let's say 12. Oh, that's a lot of sheets. The trio decided to go to the Albion Hotel, but alas... They were refused entry because they were too pissed. Oh, when you're too pissed to get let into a pub in Parramatta. 
<laughs> I reckon you must be pretty pissed. <laughs> Probably. Patrick and Joshua actually had to be removed from the premises by force. Mm, you're banned. Oh, have you ever been banned? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. 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 Not for a while. No, I don't think I have. Not that uh, I'm aware of. At about 1.40am, the three men were staggering along the side of the Church Street Mall when they passed three teenage girls who were sitting on a park bench. As they were all under 18 years old, I can't use their real names, so let's call them Fiona, Helga and Zoe. These girls were also drunk. They taunted Paddy and his buddies. They told them they were shit. Paddy did not believe he and his mates were indeed shit, <laughs> so he told the girls that they were shit. And then they said, au contraire, sir, it is in fact you who are shit. Yeah, it went like that. He <laughs> <laughs> went, no, you're shit. No, you're shit. Your shit? Your shit? It went on like this for a while, and then Patrick threatened the three girls. He told them to shut up or he would belt them. Oh, well, maybe he is shit. No. <laughs> well, that wasn't a very nice thing to say. No, it wasn't. Although, I guess he used his words. He did. Joshua Thompson walked ahead of Patrick and Dean Roche, but they soon caught up with him. The three headed towards the Parramatta Interchange in Argyle Street to catch a bus home. Now, Tara, this is a very busy part of Parramatta. Very busy. There's a massive train station there and a huge bus stop. Many buses. Yeah, heaps. The mall next to it was closed at this hour, but pubs, bars and nightclubs were still open, so there were still people out and about. Out and about? Out and about everywhere having a few drinks. <laughs> oh, I want to be one of those people. We will be those people, Barney. All right. Dean Roche realised that the rowdy teenage girls, that called them shit, were following them at a distance. When Dean went into a Hungry Jack's to buy a drunken burger... That's Burger King for the US mm. folk. The three girls went in after him. Fiona's brother, let's call him Kenny, who had just arrived, joined them there... By this time, Patrick and Joshua had gone ahead to the bus stop. Patrick rang Dean from the bus stop to let him know that the bus was nearly due and to not forget his curly fries. Oh yeah, priorities. About this time, Fiona received a phone call from her friend Johnny, following which Johnny phoned Christopher Brilliantes. Johnny should not have called Christopher. No, don't bring Christopher to an argument. <laughs> no, it's not a good idea. Christopher Brilliantes was at a party nearby with his mates Jude and two other teenagers, Todd and Sam. They were drinking wine out of a box and smoking weed together. Christopher had also smoked quite a bit of ice. Oh, nothing nice starts with ice. No. All right, so he smoked quite a bit of ice. Now, when Johnny told Christopher what was going on with his friend Fiona, he proclaimed to his knobstick friends around him, There's going to be a punch on! Before they left the unit, Jude noticed that Christopher had a knife with a black handle and a serrated blade that was around 16 centimetres long. That's not what you bring to a punch-on. Yeah, that's what's that? How many inches is that? Oh, like, well, okay. It's funny with inches. There's a six. joke that, that women don't know. Oh, no, like 12. No, it is about six or seven. Right. When Jude asked him why he had the knife, Christopher explained that it was in case anyone else had a weapon. Right, and then they're running off from the, the party that they're at, just on the off chance that they could get themselves into a fun old bit of biffo. The four pepped-up dickweeds left the <laughs> flat and walked to the Parramatta bus interchange to meet Johnny. Neither Sam nor Johnny were aware that Christopher had a knife. By this time, Dean Roche had joined Patrick and Joshua Thompson at the bus stop. He noticed the nasty young ladies they had exchanged words with before were also there. 
Further verbal insults were swapped between the girls and Joshua. Questions of the lad's sexuality were put forward by Fiona. Oh, do you like missionary or like doggy and stuff? No, I think it was more if they were gay or uh, accusing them of being homosexual. Yeah, yeah, that old chestnut. Yes, while Helga accused the three mates of practising coitus with their mothers. Oh, well, that's unlikely. When Dean Roche did not take part, Patrick became annoyed since he saw Dean as siding with the girls. Not cool, Dean. Patrick pushed Dean in the chest and made him fall backwards into a large planter box. Right, so he was thinking Dean thinks that we're, that, that Dean and his mates are shit and they're motherfuckers. They like to have yeah. coitus with their mums. He's like, yep, standard by that point. <laughs> <laughs> the logic, you know. Oh, maybe he's, yeah. He's I a feel pacifist. like Dean was over it. He just wanted to eat his burger. He, yeah, here's your curly fries now. Let's go. Yeah, can we not be involved in conflict, please? But now he's in a planter box. Not cool, Patrick. <laughs> No, although I actually think the planter box sounds like a better place to be. So during this whole farcical exchange, Tara, Fiona was taking calls on her mobile. She was heard to say, I'm waiting at the bus stop. Phone records confirm that Fiona's mobile received seven phone calls from Johnny's mobile between 9.45pm and 1.57am. The shortest of these calls lasted 11 seconds and the longest, 2 minutes and 49 seconds. I think in the 11 seconds was a bat dial. Well, it could have been. Hmm. Or it could have just been, get in now! <laughs> Give me some curly fries! Six phone calls lasting between 30 and 90 seconds were made from Johnny's mobile to Christopher's mobile that night between 1.40am and 1.50am. Shortly after these phone calls, CCTV footage shows five men running towards Patrick, Joshua and Dean. These five males were Todd, Johnny, Sam, Jude and Christopher. As the men approached, Fiona pointed to Patrick and said, This guy, this guy! She sounds really pretty. Yeah. <laughs> She's got a nicer voice than yours. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, no, I remember last time you, you, you gave my voice shit. It resulted in really jizzy fan mail, so please don't do that again. <laughs> oh. I don't think I can handle any more of that. My eyes. Hey, baby. <sighs> Todd, Johnny and Sam circled Patrick and Dean and began to assault them. It was on like Donkey Kong. The kids still say that, right, Tara? I find that very hard to believe. Yeah, well, I'm not with the kids, am I? Christopher remained about three metres from where the punch-on was taking place. Jude, probably thinking, fuck this shit, did not approach anyone and did not participate in any biffo. Wise move, Jude. Be like Jude. Be like Jude. Dean bravely attempted to protect Patrick from the onslaught of kicks and punches, but to no avail. Johnny, Todd and Sam then cornered Patrick and Dean next to the bus shelter. Christopher stood towards the back of the group, as did Joshua. That was when Joshua saw Christopher pull out the knife and pointed at him. Christopher hissed at him. Don't come any closer unless you want to be stabbed. Joshua did indeed not want to be stabbed, <laughs> so he backed away in fear. Fiona saw this, for as soon as she realised that Christopher had a knife, she pointed at Patrick. She then stood on the sidelines and cheered with her fists raised in the air. Oh my God. Thunderdome. blood sport, Ludicrous. Animals, they're animals. <laughs> Christopher lunged towards Patrick and stabbed him with the knife. Patrick sustained a deep stab wound to the left side of his torso. Patrick collapsed. A witness came to his aid and wrapped his shirt around Patrick's wound. Christopher, 
ran from the scene, as did Todd, John, Sammy, Kenny, Jude and the three teenage girls. Joshua and Dean called Triple O. Police and ambulance arrived. Patrick was taken to Westmead Hospital, where he underwent emergency surgery to repair a collapsed lung. Ow. While running away, Christopher tried to give Jude the knife he had used to stab Patrick, but Jude said, hell no. Be like Jude. Be like Jude. Christopher and Jude ran up Argyle Street, where they cut across a pedestrian crossing, which led them to Valentine Street. Christopher tried to pass Jude the knife again. Jude saw blood dripping from the knife. Christopher asked Jude to take the knife and clean it, but Jude again said, Hell no. I think Jude needs to find some better friends. They're stabby and punchy. Christopher picked up a paper bag from the ground, put the knife inside and threw the bag into a bin. Because the police will never find it there. Well, they wouldn't think to look, especially (laughs) not when they follow the CCTV footage of you doing it. The pair continued to run towards Christopher's home in Parramatta. When they arrived, Todd, Sam, Johnny, Fiona and Zoe were already waiting outside. What about Grumpy, Sneezy, Dasher, Dancer and uh, Rudolph? Well, you know why they got there first? Why? They got a cab. <laughs> From the crime scene From to the, the crime house. crime scene, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lord. They to all... be young and dumb again. They all went inside and Christopher changed his clothes. Did he slip into a unicorn onesie? And he slipped into his unicorn onesie. <laughs> his post-stabby unicorn onesie. At about 6.50am that morning, Patrick Paddy Crow died. Hmm. Not good. No, no, especially f- over nothing. Now, remember how busy I told you Parramatta Interchange is? Yeah, it is very busy. Well, there are dozens of CCTV cameras there. There are. So it didn't take long for the local popo to catch up with young Christopher and his knucklehead mates. I don't know. It feels like it's taking a while. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you so much. Oh, I don't care. Less than a week later, on Wednesday, July 11, 2012, a search warrant was executed on Christopher's unit on Nola Parade, Parramatta. Todd, Christopher and Jude were arrested and taken to Parramatta Police Station. Christopher made the following admissions when interviewed by police. He received a phone call from Johnny who told him his cousins were in trouble at the bus stop at Parramatta train station. He told Jude, Todd and Sam at the house that he thought there was going to be a fight. I believe there's going to be a fight. Oh, let's go. Are you a pugilist, sir? For I am. (laughs) Most certainly. I also a little bit stabby. He told police that he just snapped and stabbed Patrick in the back and ran away. They were punching on and then I don't know what I was thinking. I was just so smashed that I stabbed the bloke. I wasn't hitting or I didn't punch on or anything like that. I just ran in and just stabbed him and that's it and then I ran. He told police that they'd been smoking marijuana and drinking f- the finest wines known to humanity <laughs> earlier that night. <laughs> he stated that he was high, but did not admit to taking any drugs. Oh, he was high on life. He was high on life because I'm drinking the finest wine known to humanity. Yeah. In a box. He said, I just, I felt angry and then once it was over I felt scared and I felt like shit. <laughs> I hope that he writes a lot because he's got quite a turn of phrase. He really does. Mm. He told police he was angry when he returned to the house and said, because I'd done that for a stupid reason. I didn't even know these people very well and I came to help them out and, oh, it's stupid. Okay, well, he's, he's kind of, you know, a bit self-aware. 
He said there was no discussion prior to going down to the bus stop about stabbing anyone. Anyone up for a stabbing? Oh, no, no, they didn't say that because the others would have been like, nah. No, that didn't happen. Well, communication is very important. If he'd gone, so we're going to go down there, get in some biffo, maybe do some stabbing, and the others would be like, oh, you know what? Pros and cons, pros and cons. Maybe we don't do the stabbing. Let's just do the biffo. Yeah, just a straight up biffo. No. Yeah, see, if only they'd discussed it. It's good to have a plan. Well, that was the thing, you know. In the, in the good old days, you'd have a punch on out the front of the pub and then you'd go back in and have a beer with them. Oh, yeah, you'd become good mates afterwards. Oh. You found that you had a lot in common. I mean, you both bleed red, don't you? <sighs> Christopher thought that he threw the knife in a bush somewhere but couldn't remember. He said that he did not want to have it in his hand. It's all bloody and stuff. It's getting yeah, on my clothes. But- now he doesn't want it in his hand. Christopher admitted that he took his clothes to his friend's house and was going to stay there because he thought people would know it was him who stabbed Patrick and he wanted to avoid being caught. Christopher stated that he was sad, it was stupid, and he regretted what he did. In the course of the interview, Christopher identified photographs of clothing he wore on the night and signed CCTV stills of himself holding a knife as well as stills of his mates who had been with him and others he recognised. It's pretty damning stuff, isn't it? Ah, it's nothing more damning than being filmed doing it. Like, seriously. And lots of witnesses. Yeah, yeah, but the witness stuff, you know, that can get hazy, but footage, that's always going to do the trick. Yeah. Christopher was remanded until his trial in November the following year. Because he had pleaded guilty at the earliest available opportunity, Christopher was therefore entitled to a discount of 25%. Oh, what a nice bargain. It would come out during his trial that while Christopher was stabbing poor Patrick, he was on conditional liberty. He was on parole for offences that included two counts of aggravated break and enter. Right, so... I don't know. I mean, like, you might need to clarify. I'm a bit rusty on this. When you're on parole, are you supposed to stab people? No. Right, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought they were really, like, no stabbing when you're on parole. Well, the offence of murder was not the only breach of Christopher's parole. I'm sure it was probably the most dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if if you're going to think about it. Yeah. How can I fuck my parole up really badly? Yeah, like, entirely. In May 2012, a urine analysis test detected amphetamine and methamphetamine and in June 2012 he was accepted into a drug and alcohol addiction program but he got kicked out of the program for well not showing up to the program (laughs) (laughs) he also changed his address without notifying parole officers he's not very good at parole is he no no not good at parole not good pretty pretty shit well, he's not good breaking and entering and um, and stabbing people too because he gets caught for all of this yeah, shit. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, it was one stab wound that was pretty effective. I wouldn't say he wasn't good at that. Not good at getting away with it is what I'm trying to put forward here. Yeah, but we like oh. that. I mean, if it's going to happen, get caught. Yeah, we do like that. Christopher was also up to no good 11 days before the murder. He was with a group of mates at the Westfield Shopping Centre in Parramatta at about 2pm when he participated in another brawl. Wow. He really needs to play basketball or something, you know? Yeah. Get out of the house for other reasons. He needs to make decadent cakes. Yeah, decadent cakes and maybe paint some porcelain dolls. Oh, I actually don't know. It didn't work. 
No, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Yeah, Forget that. Don't go game hunting either because that's a, that's a gateway hunting. So here's his record, Tara. Three charges of aggravated break and enter. So he got two years, three months imprisonment, but was out in 12 months for mm-hmm. that. He also spent some time in the clink for dealing with proceeds, times six. Okay, drug dealing. Drug dealing, yes. Sorry, is he a minor at the time of all of these? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He spent most of his adult... Well, he's actually, he's 22. Yeah. So he spent most of his adult life in jail. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's not and, that and, much And a little it. bit of time before he turned 18 in jail too. Furnishing false info statement. Mm-hmm. And goods suspected stolen. That's a flimsy charge. Well, it is. You'd think you'd have to prove it. Yeah, that they knew it was stolen. Mm. I don't think that works like that. If you're in <laughs> possession of stolen goods, you could say, I didn't know it was stolen. Oh, right. It doesn't work like that. Not like, well, that's a nice bike. Did you buy that? Where's the receipt? Maybe it's stolen. I found it. Yeah, yeah, I found it. Surely that stands up. <laughs> So, Justice Christine Adamson said at his sentencing hearing, and could you do the judge voice for me on this? Okay, sure. Thanks. Christopher murdered Patrick in circumstances that demonstrate his continuing attitude of disobedience to the law, disregard of the safety and well-being of others, and his practice of resorting to violence. These matters illuminate his moral culpability. They also show the need to impose an appropriate punishment to deter Christopher himself and other offenders from committing further offences of a similar kind. Christopher submitted that I should take into account as a mitigating factor that he has good prospects of rehabilitation and was unlikely to reoffend. I am not satisfied of this matter. Although he will be older when he is eventually released from custody, I am not satisfied that he will either be wiser or more able to control his impulses or more able to express them in a non-violent way. Damning, huh? Yeah, it is. Christopher Brilliantes was born in the Philippines. His father left his mother when he was a one-year-old. In 1997, when he was seven, he came to Australia and lived with his grandmother, her partner and other relatives at a house in Hurstville. His mother came to Australia a few months later and went to live in the family home. The following year, his mother had a daughter, of whom Christopher became very fond. In 2000, Christopher's grandmother separated from her partner and moved away from the Hurstville house, leaving Christopher there with his step-grandfather for a few months. In the same year, his mother met her current partner. She became pregnant the following year. Friction developed between her new partner and Christopher, as a result of which Christopher was no longer welcome to live with his mother. Christopher was passed around from relative to relative. From the ages of 10 and 16, he was always on the move between different houses and different schools. He wanted to live with his mother. When she made it clear that this was impossible, he became aggressive and began stealing. He left school at 15. He has never done any paid work. Podcaster, eh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Although Christopher's mother phoned him regularly and saw him from time to time, he told her that he felt that he had no family in Australia. Christopher has four half-sisters, all of whom live with their mother. Oh, okay. So he's like the only one of her kids that doesn't? He sounded like he really wanted to live with his mum. Yeah. And she wouldn't make, couldn't make that possible. Yeah, that would create quite a, a disconnection. Yeah, very under-parented, uh, Yeah, Christopher. For the murder of Patrick Crow, 
Christopher Brilliantes was sentenced to 18 years with a non-parole period of 13 years and 6 months. He will be eligible for release on parole on July 8, 2026. It's a pretty hefty sentence. I know he murdered somebody, but... Yeah. He... And he breached his parole, too. Well, yeah. And also, it was quite unprovoked. Yeah. So, just the fact that he seems to be like a, a bit of a ticking time bomb might have played a role in that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But Tara, there's more. There's always more. There's more to this story. Supporters of Patrick Crowe staged an angry protest after the teenage girl who called for reinforcements escaped jail time for her role in his stabbing death. Oh. Remember Fiona? Yeah, I do. She wasn't very nice. Cheering from the sidelines. Her murder charge was dropped to be replaced with an affray charge. So that's just fighting. Affray. Right. Yeah. Family and friends of Patrick were furious that the girl was only given a 10-month supervised probation order. By the way, Tara, she'd been in remand for six months before it came to trial, so she did serve some jail time. A little bit. Yeah, six months. Mm -hmm. Patrick's mother, Angelina Crowe, said the law needed to be changed to make young people accountable for their actions. She may not have been the one who stabbed my son, but she was definitely the one who pointed out who was going to be stabbed she told media. He was a beautiful young man. He loved life. He loved people and he shouldn't be dead. A large group of friends and family held placards outside court that read, murder should equal life sentence and murder is murder no matter what age. Patrick's mother, Angelina, said of her son, I miss him. I miss him around me. I miss his phone calls. He was a beautiful young man. He loved life. He loved people and he shouldn't be dead. Oh, that would be devastating. She just thought he was going out with his mates. Yeah, you should be able to go out and tie one on and not get stabbed at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, and those guys didn't want any trouble. They were walking away from it. Yeah. You know, they were waiting for their bus. Yeah, yeah, they were out of there. Yeah. Never got to eat those curly fries. I feel like he might have. Yeah. This isn't really the point, though. So No, it's not, it's not the in. point. It's not the point. No, wow, fuck. All right, I think we need an Aussie Az to cheer us up. What is that? Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. But this one actually isn't really criminal stupidity. It's just really fair dinkum Aussie. Oh, a bit of a lark. Total lark. Sweet. A caper? No, more of a lark. Hijinks? I'll, I'll let you decide. How's that sound? All right. Australian swimwear brand Budgie Smuggler are famous for their tiny, colourful, underpant-inspired men's swimwear, also known as dick stickers or speedos. They hold an annual competition called the Search for the Country's Most Ordinary Rig. This is essentially a contest to find the most unremarkable-looking dad-bod-shaped bloke in Australia. Oh, well, I'm completely out of the running for that, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you just couldn't. Yeah. So um, to be in the running, fellas must meet a strict list of criteria. They should look like they could have been good at sport at some point in their life, although they were most likely prevented via injury or robbed by selectors early in their career. They must be capable of launching a child from their shoulders several metres high in a swimming pool. That's oh, a very right. Aussie thing to yeah, do. Yeah. They should look like they can still run for a taxi and swing an axe. They get bonus points for a description of the exceptional ordinariness of themselves. Also, a six-pack is an automatic disqualification. 
Oh, that rules me out. Yeah, you're done. You're done, son. Now, in the words of the event organisers, while this event seems like a complete piss take, we are aiming to send the message that it's okay not to be a completely shredded Instagram blogger. I don't think they call them Instagram bloggers, do they? Ah, well, these guys do. Influencers, I believe they call them. Yeah, 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 like us. So influential. Uh, (laughs) Not. (laughs) The top 10 contestants are flowing to Sydney for the company's gala event, with the winner claiming a prize of customised dick stickers covered with photos of themselves. (laughs) Picture of your head on your dick, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I've always dreamed of. I know. Last year's finalist, Dave Eddy, definitely nicknamed Davo, loves wearing his pepperoni pizza pattern budgie smugglers around. The 32-year-old said, Oh, it does make me feel sexy, like a bit of a physical object, but that's nothing different to normal, eh? (laughs) Oh, I get a fair bit of attention from the ladies when I wear them in public. I usually have to bring some sort of weapon to fend off the birds because my girlfriend doesn't really like it. When Davo heard about the competition, he knew he was in with a shot, saying, Oh, I had some great ordinary glamour modelling shots on my phone. I thought it'd be rude not to share my rig with the world, really. So he's got some moobs. Yeah, a little bit bit of moob. A little bit of moobs in his life. Um, Now, asked to describe himself in three words in his event profile, he said, Happy, silly, dad bod. He also listed his hobbies as short walks on the beach and admitted his first crush was Sigourney Weaver when she played the hot chick in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was hoping he was going for alien Sigourney, but I think that might be a little left of centre. Now, he also listed his biggest talent as, now are you ready? It is a big talent. All right. Drum roll, please. Been real good at making fart noises with me armpit. Oh, wow, the winter nights must charge by. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do okay, that. Okay, show me, show Well, actually, put it near the microphone. Show us all. Yeah, he is using his armpit. I, was, I used to do that all the time when I was a kid, and my dad caught me doing it once, and he said, what are you doing? Stop that. And oh, I, and he I wasn't went, into it. I, and, and I went, oh, sorry. He said, do it on the other side. You put pressure on your heart. Oh, <laughs> He didn't want you doing it. <laughs> he didn't want me doing it on my on my left side. He wanted me to do it on my right side because it can cause heart attacks in children. I don't know. Maybe he was just fucking with me. He, I would like to think so. So yeah, um, they're actually looking for people to enter the competition currently. Um, so if you think you've got what it takes, uh, go to the Budgie Smuggler website. I will warn you though that if you make the top ten, like you're meant to strut around just in your little little undie sized Budgie Smugglers to sexy songs uh. and like. Give it a bit of woohoo. Well, how do you have to enter right now? How long have I got to get a dad bod? How long <laughs> have I got to wreck this? I'm not sure how long you have to ruin this masterpiece. No. Maybe you and The Rock could do it together. That'd be great. Yeah. You know, Dwayne and I are old friends. Well, yeah, you work out together. That's why you have well, such a yeah. similar physique. Well, I taught him how to work out. Well, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. he didn't know until you showed him. Yeah, that's right. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink. There's a PayPal donate button there too. That was my thirsty voice. I think they would know by now. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast.
and follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes, and all of that sweet, sweet merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Well, that was all right, wasn't it? I don't even know. It felt long. Having to pick up the kids in the middle of recording just makes it take days. Hey, uh, Mo was asking me the other day, he said, what's R&B stand for? And Dexter just said, rubbing butts. (laughs) Well, he's not wrong. (laughs) Hey, I was explaining to the kids about uh, gaslighting the other day. Because you know how you like to gaslight me? Like, I'll say, where's my phone? You'll say, you've never had a phone. Oh, I know, but like, I feel like gaslighting for real is a bit more subtle than that. I don't do it in a way that you might actually believe me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or well, do I? They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since Well, I was, uh, he was trying to uh, gaslight me the other day and I said, don't gold light me. And he went, <laughs> gold lighting? And I said, yeah, don't gold light me. Was he all like, no, daddy, it's gaslighting. And I said, no, it's always been gold lighting. <laughs> did it work? It did for a while. Oh, I gaslighted him about gaslighting. <laughs> Father of the year, huh? I know. This is, this is how I enjoy myself these days. It's the small pleasures in life. You just got to take it when you can get it, you know? I don't. I'm not completely happy with the nickname Jizzy. <laughs> I don't like any of the nicknames you give me. At least I've got something to throw Jizzy. back. Jizzy. Jizzy. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's pretty funny, don't you? I love it. Jizzy. Uh, Hufflepuff. Jizzy Black. Jizzy Black. <laughs> I am Jizzy Black. Hey, baby, my name's Jizzy Black. <laughs> my name's Sexy Jizzy. <laughs> all right, we should um, we, we should right, fuck we this got thing. This, we got we got a smile in our voice now. Yeah, <laughs> a smile in my ass. Oh, it's better mm. than on your face. Hi, I'm Barney Black. Hi, I'm Barney Black. Hi, I'm Barney Black. Okay, get it right. What were you fucking camboing? Hi, I'm Barney Black. Mm. Is that too fast? Yeah, wait. too slow. Too slow. Okay. End a podcast. Uh. Hi, I'm Barney Black. Oh, that just made me feel molested. No, normal voice. Hi. No, I'm taking the cans off too. All right, all right, all right, I'll do (laughs) it. Jizzy, no wonder I call you Jizzy. What will you be regaling us with this week, my Jizzy friend? (laughs) (laughs) Are you want me to redo that? My name is not Jizzy. (laughs) DJ Jizzy Barney. Uh Um, Do you want me to redo that? That's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, right, I don't think right, it is. All right, let's do it again. <clears throat> she blew a kiss towards Tenny Walmerans. <laughs> All right, well, that's the funnest part of the day out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> we had someone on Instagram actually recently message us and, and asked if the woman singing True Crime Nerd Time was Karen from My Favourite Murder. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. That's Barney's girlfriend. That's right. 
And she's not on that show. Or if she is on My Favourite Murder, she hasn't told us. Well, I think I'd know about that. Well, I would like to think so. She probably does keep secrets from me. <laughs> yeah, she's on one of the biggest podcasts in the world. That's her, her little secret. Anyway, practice makes perfect. Oh, ew. What? <laughs> About having sex with your mom? I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> well, oh, okay. Are you? Oh, shut it down. That's, shut it that's down. That's exactly what a homosexual would say. <laughs> you. I'm going to get beer. Uh, really? Is it like that, is it? Yep. Uh, well, you better get me one. Yep. Sounds like you were going to milk a cow. <laughs> you ever milked a cow? I mean, no, I've milked a bull. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, no, you haven't. No, I haven't. No. I'm not very interested in that. Thank you. What about milking cows? It's it's fun. Like, I don't really have access to a cow that wants me to touch its boobs. And if someone's around, you can just, like, flip it up and squirt him in the face. Like Robert Mitchum. <laughs> like Robert Mitchum. He did. There's a picture of him doing it in prison. Yeah, and if there's cats there, you can squirt in at cats' faces and they like it. I don't think they do. They do, because I like milk. Yeah, but okay, so you like Fanta, but I don't think you, you want like a fucking cannon full of Fanta fired into your mouth. Oh, actually, I take that back. You probably do. <laughs> I'm just going to hold on to my knees, and you can... Uh... <laughs> you like sausages, but you don't want an, a, an eight-ton sausage dropped on your head. You, you say you know me, but you just don't know me. <laughs> I don't. You don't you know don't me. You don't know me. You're not my real dad. <laughs> Actually, I am your father, Bonnie. Uh, no. Yeah, that's true. You don't want these jeans. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.